My name is Velma Vouloir, and you are listening to Controversy. gorgeous humans i'm back baby did you miss me i miss you guys loads i'm so happy to be here recording a brand new episode for you all today thank you so much to everyone that reached out in the last couple of weeks regarding my health and my voice i'm all better my voice is back finally i was so upset when i couldn't record last week I did try my best for you all, but in the end, I just had to take the sign and get that rest in, you know, which is hard for me. It's not something that comes naturally to me. I'm, you know, I'm not even a burn the candle at both ends kind of gal. I'm more of a burn the candle at 50 sides until I'm a puddle of useless shit on the floor. And then I cry because I'm no longer a candle. I grudgingly put myself back together and promise all my friends and loved ones, I'll take better care of myself. And then, you know, don't because I'm addicted to high pressure, adrenaline producing insane ways of living like a moth to the flame. We love what we love. And I'm glad I got the forced rest when I did, because otherwise I do not think I could have made it through the last week. I've just come back from a stint of shows with Yummy, which was just the best time. If you're not following them, you absolutely must. Yummy is an Australian drag and burlesque cabaret that is nationally and internationally acclaimed. I'm so honored to be part of the family and the cast. I adore what they stand for, their heart, the sheer talent in this group. It's so impressive. So yes, go check them out on Instagram. They're at yummy the show on Instagram. Go and buy all their merch, book them for all your events and book them for huge shows and festivals and tours. Make them as famous as possible because they take my breath away. I love them all so much, you know, and we need shows and we need producers and we need artists like this in the world now more than ever. So yes, that's what I've been up to. I've been having a You can see some photos on my Instagram of all the shenanigans I was getting up to. And then we had Easter. We've just had Easter. I hope everyone had a nice time with the Easter bunny. I hope whatever you did and however you used that time, it was wonderful for you. I had my entire family over for the weekend and we demolished my entire backyard as part of my prep for creating my dream permaculture bee haven, veggie garden, orchard, flower pack paradise, if that's what I'm going to call it. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. It will probably take me years to establish it, but I can't wait to be one of those nutty, witchy cottage core bitches that, you know, grows belladonna and cans peaches for the winter and shouts at kids to stay away from her yard. (laughs) Yeah, aside from making controversy wildly successful, that's my dream to be surrounded by flowers and food that I grew, sitting in the veggie garden with my cats, drinking wine, filtering through my collection of vintage erotica in a obscenely large sun hat. That's the dream. Basically, I just just want to be Aunt Jet and Aunt Francis out of Practical Magic. <laughs> Aren't they the best? Midnight margaritas, brownies for breakfast, spells and hexes. Ugh, 
come at me. Yeah, I'm waffling, but let's move on to some controversy news. It's pretty short and sweet. All I really have to say is that I've been working on some amazing merch samples for you all. You've all been messaging me, asking me when that's happening and it's happening. So keep your eyes peeled. I have t-shirts coming. I have lapel pins coming and some other cute little things in the pipeline as well. So if there is something you'd like to see, let me know. Send me an email, send me a message on Instagram. I'd love to know what you're keen for. Also, this week is also when we're announcing our launch giveaway. Finally, right? I'm sorry it's taken me so long, but I've been gathering gorgeous prizes for you and I know you're going to love it. I've been so overwhelmed with the support Controversy has received so far and I just want to pay it forward and shower you all in love and praise and pretty nice things. So all the details for the giveaway and how you can enter will be announced on the Controversy Instagram and Facebook this week. And we will run the giveaway for a couple of weeks as well. So there's plenty of time for everyone to enter. And then last but not least, I also just wanted to say a huge thank Thank you to those that have subscribed to the Patreon, you know, to receive financial support from listeners and believers in the show really keeps me going. It's so flattering and it's literally going to end up being the thing that keeps this podcast afloat. I've said it before, you know, this is a solo venture. I don't get paid. I don't have any funding. I do all of the days of the research and the writing and the recording and editing for controversy on my own time. It's outside of my teaching hours and my performing hours. It's outside being a parent. So if you love the show, please consider donating, you know, even a few dollars a month. It's the cost of a coffee. If everyone did that, I'd be able to put so much extra time into the show and I'd be able to make so many more episodes for you. To my current patrons, thank you. There are five of you so far and I'm sending you huge love and virtual hugs through the microphone right now to I'm going to name you all um just first names I hope that's okay I just wanted to say thank you but to Tara to Ten to Cherry to Kimberly and to Adam your belief in me means so much and I just appreciate it so much you really have no idea and also to Maple and Dan and Janelle and Jess who donated via PayPal even before the pay Patreon existed. Thank you guys. Once I have my merch sorted, you best believe I'll be sending out some little presents to each and every one of you. And I can't wait for you to see them. Literally every single dollar helps make this show you know, right now it costs me money to make it. And one day with the support of patrons and sponsors, I know we'll break even. And then one day, maybe I'll even be able to pay myself to bring you the show. Wouldn't that be nice? We can dream, we can make this happen. So if you'd like to join the Patreon, you can search for us as Controversy, C-N-T-R-O-V-E-R-S-Y, or there is a link in the bio of the Instagram as well. Or, you know, if you don't want to commit to a monthly pledge, but you'd like to contribute, then PayPal me. Send me a PayPal, guys. I would love that. Send me a dollar. Send me $5. Send me $100. You know, Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, send me a couple of million dollars. I will do the most wonderful things with your money. I promise. My email for PayPal is velmavouloir at 
gmail.com. Or again, the link is in the Insta bio. So support us, keep us going. I see each and every single donation. It's all me. I'll know exactly where to send you those thank you cards. And if you're a broke ass bitch, like for reals, a broke ass bitch, then don't send me money. You know, don't send me money if your gas is about to be switched off or you're eating me garang every night for dinner. Don't do that. But if you want, you can always write us a great review on Apple Podcasts. You can share the episodes. You can tell all your friends. And I would be so, so, so grateful for that as well. So today's episode is a bit of a fun one. I'm putting my English major to good use with our subject matter, and I'm going to be talking about one of the most notorious, scandalous, and taboo novels of the 19th century. And I'm also going to be speaking about how it impacted not only society, but psychology, sociology, and sexology as we know it, specifically in regards to kink and BDSM. I adore literature. I'm a total bibliophile. I adore erotica. I adore language. And this book in particular has given us a lot of contemporary cultural imagery and symbolism that we probably just take for granted these days. So I'm here to give you a little bit of an origin story. So the piece of literature in question that we are talking about today is none other than the novel Venus in Furs, written in 1870 or published in 1870, I should say, by Austrian author Leopold von Sascha Masek. Perhaps you've read it, perhaps you have no idea what I'm talking about, but either way, buckle in, let's get into it. We'll talk a little about the novel and the author and then delve into the larger effects and impacts of the book. But first, I've always got to quote those sources. So the information for today's episode came primarily from all my second year uni notes I have stashed away from being, you know, a super cool pro-sex hipster feminist English major at Melbourne Uni way back when I was 19. But I'm also quoting and sourcing Dr. Roy Baumeister's article in volume 25 of the Journal of Sex Research, Le Froid et le Cruel by Gilles Delieuse, David Wiley's review of Venus in Furs on thoughtcode.com, supersummary.com and goodreads.com. Now, I will say going through my research and source material, I found a lot of this stuff very stuffy, uh, well, a little bit stuffy. You know, literary critique can often be very dry and academic, and I want to present this to you in a way that's not that. So please don't mistake it for me not taking this work seriously, but I realize that for most of us, you know, we want to tune into a podcast and relax. We want to get told some interesting, sexy history. You're always posting those sexy pictures of yourselves in the bath with a wine, listening to controversy, and I don't want to ruin in that vibe for you with some dusty academia. So first and foremost, the reason this novel is special is because in its most rudimentary form, and I kind of hate to say this and use this example, but Venus in Fuzz is essentially the original Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, full disclosure, I have not read those books. I have not seen those films. I hear they're largely terrible and problematic and corny, but I 
do remember the absolute outcry and pandemonium and craze that happened when Fifty Shades was first published in 2011. You know, that was undeniable. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was reading it. The church was condemning it. And essentially the exact same thing happened with Venus in Furs in Europe in the late 1800s. So let's talk about this book, shall we? Venus in Furs is a German novella published in 1870 by Austrian nobleman, writer, professor, and philosopher Leopold von Sacher Masek. The book, set in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Italy, is concerned with the theme of the male sexual desire for a woman's domination and its relation to gender and class in society, derived from Sacher Masek's own experiments with bondage and domination with his mistress, Baroness Fanny Pistor. Which, side comment, Fanny Pistor has got to be one of the worst names in the history of the world, right? That's just something else. I do not know what her parents were thinking, but I don't know if that's a common name. Personal opinion, it's hideous. So straight off the bat, I'm going to get you to keep in mind the time frame throughout this episode. So we're in the 1800s. Think about gender roles, communication around sex and sexual desire. It's very straight laced. It's very private. And here, here we have a very highly regarded man of noble stature publishing a novel about a woman dominating a man, overpowering this man. And on top of it, this man not only tolerates it, but gains sexual satisfaction and empowerment from this domination. We live in a much more liberal world today where kink and BDSM are pretty familiar as a concept, but back in 1870, this shit was just not heard of. People were absolutely floored by this subject matter. And then to add to the insane amount of gossip and conversation, it actually comes out that the events portrayed in the book are actually based on fact that Sasha Masek was engaged in a relationship just like the one in the book with his mistress, which of course only fueled the fire of salaciousness. So apparently Sasha Masek, who was already an incredibly well-known writer and professor and philosopher, was contacted via letter by his future mistress under the fictitious title of Baroness Bogdanov for suggestions on improving her writing to make it suitable for publication. So apparently that is the 1800s version of sliding into someone's DMs right there. So somewhere along the lines there, a sexual relationship between Pistor and Sasha Masek strikes up and she agrees to participate in these Dom sub fantasies. And then soon after we have the publication of Venus in Furs, which becomes almost a diary for the events that followed. So let's talk about the book and what happens in the story. I'm aware some of us may have read it, some of us may not, and I won't give away too many crucial spoilers, but I am going to sort of surmise the book now. So if you don't want to know anything at all about the plot, then maybe skip forward the next few minutes. But if you're not planning on reading the book yourself and you want a basic Betty summary of the story, I'm going to give it to you right now. The main storyline of the novel is introduced through what's called a framing narrative. So it opens with a dream sequence in which a unnamed narrator, presumably an urban upper-class man in Central Europe, 
carries on a dialogue with Venus, the Roman goddess of love. They discuss desire and the cruel and unfaithful nature of women. The narrator is awakened from his dream by his servant, reminding him that he has an appointment for tea with his friend Severin von Kozemski. The narrator then goes to Severin's house and notices a gorgeous oil painting of Venus that reminds him of his dream. Severin's character in the book is described as quite sober but sometimes angry and he lashes out violently at his maid explaining to his shocked friend the narrator that in his view if a woman is not subservient to a man he must be subservient to her. Then he brings out a manuscript of his own writing entitled titled Confessions of a Suprasensual Man, which basically then takes up almost the entirety of the novel from here on in. You know, we're reading a book about a book. So the central character and narrator of this manuscript of the Suprasensual Man is a poet who's also named Severin. So he's staying at a health resort in the Carpathian Mountains, and he develops this obsession with a fellow guest named Wanda. He declares his love for her. She loves him too, but she warns him that she will get tired of him and be careless for him and grow despotic. And he embraces this idea and proposes that they take it one step further and that he will be her slave, comparing his position, you know, to a Christian martyr. He tells her stories of his adolescence, his desires, his fascination with fur and always kind of brings it back to his obsession with Wanda. She continues to warn him, expressing kind of alternating disgust and intrigue at his proposal of slavery. And he continues to insist that he must have her either as his wife or as his ruler. And finally, Wanda agrees. And then they draw up a contract which gives her absolute control over him. And his one condition with the contract is that she must wear furs and pretend to be and embody the goddess of love for the sake of his pleasure. This kind of takes over and becomes a reoccurring theme in what happens in the book. Wanda assumes this dominant role and begins to perform it really well. She begins to enjoy it and really explore and sink into this role of dominant female. So eventually they give Severin a new name, which is Grigor, which was a very sort of common um, servant name at the time. From here, they go to Italy. And by the time they arrive in Florence, they've really sort of cemented this master-slave relationship. And so eventually, so they've drawn up the contract. And then once they're in Florence, they sign the document that gives all of Severin or Grigor's agency over to Wanda and formalizes, you know, his, his final role as slave. She also makes him write out a second agreement stating that he has forfeited his own life so that she may kill him if she desires. And her first act is to forbid him from looking at her for an entire month. And basically the rest of the book kind of narrates the events of his life as her slave. She treats him with increasing cruelty. To cut a long story short, it kind of just goes on like this. So in her new assumed role of the goddess Venus and as the ultimate dom in this relationship, as a gift for herself, Wanda hires a painter to come to their villa and paint her portrait as the goddess Venus in her furs. And it's here that we find out that Wanda 
falls in love with the painter who is a Greek archetype. He's described as powerfully masculine, gorgeous looking, very assertive, very confident. And so that's a contrast to kind of this subservient pitifulness of Severin. And here he kind of realizes he wants out of the agreement and as punishment, Wanda gives him to the painter who ties him up and beats him. This humiliation at the hands of this rival man kind of snaps him out of this desire for subjection by a woman. And then afterwards, Wanda leaves with the painter, which indicates the breaking of this contract and freeing Severin from the tyranny of dominatrix Wanda. So then at the end, we come back to the framing story with this narrator and Severin conversing over the manuscripts that they've just read. And the moral of the story, Severin says, is that in the present state of society, that women can only ever be the slave or the despot of the man and never his equal or his companion. And that this will only ever change when women have the same rights as men in both education and work and society. So that's a brief summary for you. That kind of gives you an idea as to what the novel is all about. Kind of misses out some of the fun, you know, salacious erotic moments, but that's a summary. So if you want to go in and read it, read away to your heart's desire. So here we are, we're in... 1870 in Germany and this nobleman is not only shouting from the rooftops about how much he loves and gets off on getting beaten by his mistress but he's also making suggestions on social progression by opening a dialogue about feminism and equality between the sexes he's saying that for us to be able to play with chosen roles of dominance and submission we all have to exist on an equal playing field in society first there was total uproar about that the book was banned everywhere almost immediately. The clergy slammed it. But as we know, and we say on almost every episode of Controversy, when the church wants something eradicated, it only fuels the fire of popularity. So, of course, secretly published editions, black market editions of the novel begin to widely circulate European and British society. You know, it was like that secret fun book that everyone started talking about. And I'm sure many people out there began to experiment themselves with a little BDSM action in their lives. So now not only is the publication of this novel fascinating, but the reason I wanted to talk about it today is because it's also really pivotal as a few years later in 1886, German psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing publishes one of the first ever written medical texts on sexual pathology. It's a very famous text called Psychopathia Sexualis. So Psychopathia Sexualis has been described as a kind of schoolboy's masturbatory compendium because for the first time was describing and exploring deviant sexual behavior such as fetishism, sadism, masochism, and exhibitionism. And in this text, it's the first time we see the terminology of the word masochism used. And Masochism is named after who else but our very own Leopold von Sascha Masik, the author of Venus in Furs. So Sascha Masik, Masik Masochism. That's where it comes from. So the definition of masochism in Psychopathia Sexualis is this. 
It's defined as a peculiar perversion of the psychical vita sexualis or sexual life in which the individual affected in sexual feeling and thought is controlled by the idea of being completely and unconditionally subject to the will of a person of the opposite sex. This idea is colored by lustful feeling. The masochist lives in fancies in which she creates situations of this kind and often attempts to realize them. So Sasha Masik was absolutely furious at this sexual deviancy being named after him. He was horrified because, of course, it's really fusing his entire being and public image with this medical terminology. And Kraft Ebbing came under a lot of slack for it, but he didn't care. He was quoted as saying, I feel justified in calling this sexual anomaly masochism because the author, Sasha Masik, frequently made this perversion, which up to his time was quite unknown to the scientific world. During recent years, facts have been advanced, which prove that Sasha Masik was not only the poet of masochism, but that he himself was afflicted with the anomaly. As an author, he suffered severe injuries so far as the influence and intrinsic merit of his work is concerned. For so long and whenever he eliminated his perversion from his literary efforts, he was a gifted writer and as such would have achieved real greatness had he been actuated by normally sexual feelings. In this respect, he is a remarkable example of the powerful influence exercised by the vita sexualis, be it in the good or evil sense over the formation and direction of man's mind. So... That's kind of brutal, hey? And definitely Kraft Ebbing is creating and using this terminology in a negative sense. You know, he's saying he's a man afflicted by an illness and a perversion. He's not saying being masochistic or submissive is okay. He's saying it's a disease, essentially. So then we're fast forwarding a little bit further. And in 1905, we have everyone's favorite psych daddy, Sigmund Freud, further developing this theory into the broader study and psychoanalysis analytic theory of sadomasochism. And this is really the entire beginnings of the creation of common language around contemporary kink practice and BDSM. BDSM, of course, stands for bondage, domination, sadism, and masochism. And Venus in Furs is one of the earliest examples of consensual, safe, reciprocal kink play in modern literature. There is an entire section in the novel where Severin and Wanda discuss the terms of their dom-sub relationship. They each make their demands, they communicate, they compromise, they come to an agreement and a contract is drawn up and signed, which is really important. And those that are familiar with BDSM practices know that consent, that communication and mutual agreement is everything. Nothing happens in kink without consent. There are many people that will say that subordination or submission or being the masochist in kink exploration is actually the true holder of the power in these situations as the level of submission or pain experienced or humiliation endured, it's actually up to them. They draw the line. They say when and how. And despite the appearance of suffering or submission or relinquishing control, they are truly the ones in control because they are calling the shots. You know, there's there's that saying is, um, you know, topping from the bottom. That is so so prevalent in masochism and submission play. 
very important to mention that obviously the definition of masochism, it's really developed and altered over time. It's something that I would love to delve into on this podcast in the future. But for now, I just wanted to throw this explanation of masochism into the ether for you. So this is a quote from text written by social psychologist, Dr. Roy Baumeister. And so he writes that recent theoretical advances from social psychology, especially self-awareness theory, and action identification theory are here applied to masochism. It's possible to consider masochism as neither a form of self-destruction nor a derivative of sadism. Instead, masochism may be a means of escaping from high-level awareness of self as a symbolically mediated, temporarily extended identity. Such awareness is replaced by focus on the immediate present and on bodily sensations and sometimes by a low-level awareness of self as an object. Evidence is reviewed indicating that the principal features of masochism, things like pain, bondage, and humiliation, help accomplish this hypothesized escape from high-level self-awareness. Historical evidence suggests that sexual masochism proliferated when Western culture became highly individualistic. This could mean that cultural emphasis on the autonomous individual self increased the burdensome pressure of selfhood, leading to greater desires to escape from self masochistically. And I I think that's a great reference point. You know, there are so many, I suppose, tropes, you know, of the the highly successful man, the the person with all this power, you know, it's always the the Wall Street broker or the high-powered CEO that has all this self-actualization. And then, you know, they're at the, the dominatrix house or, you know, they're at the fetish club getting the shit beaten out of them. That's this place where they get to just relinquish that control, which is interesting. I find these theories so delightfully fascinating. The human psyche is so complex and intriguing. I love seeing the timeline of something like masochism and how it's been perceived in its various definitions. You know, I'm not saying that Venus in Furs is history's first ever example of masochism. I have no doubt there are plenty of others, but this was really the first time this behavior was published for the world to see. The concept of that balancing act of pleasure and pain being closely linked is universal and has existed, especially in religious text for thousands of years. That's the first thing I think of when I think of masochism is is Christianity, you know, the suffering as a measure of worship, prolonging pleasure or satisfaction to achieve a higher state of mind, proving yourself as a loyal subject through degradation. It makes you think of, you know, the use of the solace or self-flagellation in Opus Dei and Roman Catholicism. You know, it's this idea that true worship and devotion and love exists through discomfort and suffering. So this book has inspired many cultural references and adaptations, and it's really famous, obviously, as I've just said, for introducing the concept of sadomasochism into Western culture. And look, all in all, is it my favorite book in the whole world? No, it's not. To be honest, 
When I first read it, as I said earlier, I was in second year uni and woefully naive. And I loved the idea of studying censored literature, you know, because it made me look really edgy and cool when I was riding the tram to school in my Doc Martens. And admittedly, the first time I read it, I found it kind of boring. I didn't see the sexual correlation, you know. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, Severin is this guy. He likes being whipped. He's kind of whiny, but when does all this kind of cool, kinky, taboo sex start happening? And it never does. I remember getting to the end and just kind of being like, what? (laughs) But you read the book, then you begin to understand the nuances of eroticism. You begin to understand that sexuality is so much broader than the act of sex. You begin to understand power roles, control, and the pleasure of relinquishing control. Then you put that in the social setting of 1870, and suddenly you're like, oh shit, this is pivotal. You know, you've got a woman representing a goddess who is in total control and a man, a noble, educated man who's saying that power roles can exist outside of gender. And he's also advocating for equality. That's incredible. And further along, there are so many adaptations of Venus in Furs. There have been so many plays written, so many books. Like I said before, you've got Fifty Shades of Grey, and so many others. You have so many films based upon Venus in Furs. Roman Polanski is probably the most recent one, which came out in 2013. Then you've got these other gorgeous little cultural references. You've got the Velvet Underground's famous song, Venus in Furs. This book is where it came from. You've got Stephen Severin, who is the co-founder of the amazing band Susie and the Banshees. He took the name Severin from the character in the novel. And another one which I think is really important to mention and that I love as a lover of vintage eroticism and erotic photography, fetish photography, there's a really popular imagery in kink and BDSM themed visuals of a subordinate, usually a male, on his knees worshipping a really dominant character that's usually a woman who's dressed, you know, as a queen in stunning boots or heels. They're usually on a throne or dressed really elaborately. You know, it's that whole kind of man kneeling before a queen. It's the whole, like, lick my boots, let me step on you, queen and her slave kind of vibe. We all, maybe not all, but a lot of us, you know, that that's definitely symbolism and imagery that pops up time and time again in kink and BDSM visuals. And this actually comes largely from a really famous photograph of Sasha Masek and Fanny Pistor doing this exact same thing back in 1869. I'll post it on the Instagram, but yes, that's where this imagery comes from. So they created this photograph depicting this dominant submissive dynamic. And it's been replicated in so many ways and so many times since. And then also, side note, but I found out recently, Sasha Masek is actually the great, great uncle of the incredibly famous British singer and actress Marianne Faithful. I love her. She's wonderful. She's made music with basically every world famous rock star ever, David Bowie, Billy Corgan. Um, she dated Mick Jagger for ages. She played is the voice of God in Ab Fab. For all you Ab Fab fans out there, she's in Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst. She's awesome. So that's just a fun little side note I have. And 
That's kind of it. That's what I have for you. That's Venus in furs for today's episode. I hope you learned something. I hope it wasn't too dense for you. Like I said, I know literature can be a little bit sticky sometimes, but it's a fascinating thing. I think it's gorgeous to know these origin stories, where words come from, where these ideologies come from and where they first appeared throughout society. So there you go. Thank you for listening. I promise I will keep my voice in check and you will have a brand new episode from me next week keep an eye out on those socials for our launch giveaway and as always respect one another pay for your porn do not fake your orgasms and i will see you next tuesday